This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. Navigating Parkinson's disease can be challenging, but we're here to help. Welcome to the Michael J. Fox Foundation podcast. Tune in as we discuss what you should know today about Parkinson's research, living well with the disease, and the Foundation's mission to speed a cure. Free resources like this podcast are always available at michaeljfox.org. Hello, I'm Larry Gifford, a proud member of the Michael J. Fox Foundation Patient Council, founder of pdavengers.com, and the host of another podcast called When Life Gives You Parkinson's. This is part two of Milestones and Momentum in Parkinson's Research, as we mark 20 years of the Michael J. Fox Foundation. If you haven't heard part one, you might want to go back and listen to it. We released it in December of 2020. Quickly, to get you up to speed, the Foundation was founded by Michael J. Fox and Debbie Brooks in 2000. Debbie's also today the Foundation's Executive Vice Chairman. The Chief Executive Officer is Todd Shearer, Ph.D. He joined Michael J. Fox Foundation in 2004 as Associate Director of the Research Program. They are my guests today. We pick up the conversation where we left off last time. The Human Genome Project was completed in 2003, and a year later, there was excitement and hope around new research by an international consortium that implicated a new gene, LRK2, L-R-R-K-2, in Parkinson's disease. Investigators write that mutations in the LRK2 gene may be central to the pathogenesis of Parkinsonism. Dr. Andrew Singleton, a distinguished investigator at the National Institutes of Health, remembers that as just the beginning of our understanding of the role of genetics in PD. We went from knowing nothing of the disease, we, we always thought it was a non-genetic disease, to now knowing there are 90 or 100 different genes that influence disease, and we know there's more to find. Todd, that probably was an exciting time. Yeah, I mean, this has been probably the biggest inflection point, in my opinion, in Parkinson's research and the potential for really transformative treatments that are treated, you know, targeting the disease process itself. Um, when I was in the lab, like like Andy said, there had been some studies that really suggested there was no genetic component to Parkinson's. And um, with the discovery of these genes, it really gave tangible um, science to go after for the cause of the disease and the underlying disease. And now there's, you know, a vast therapeutic pipeline based on, on LRK2. Even prior to LRK2, alpha-synuclein in the late 90s was discovered as the first genetic link to Parkinson's. Um, and this has really transformed our understanding. It's brought in the pharmaceutical industry, which now um, has great interest in Parkinson's. The foundation wasted no time in diving into genetics at that point, using a $2.8 million grant to produce the genome map of Parkinson's. What exactly was that? So this was uh, an attempt to really get a large population of Parkinson's patients and, and try to get a fundamental understanding of the genetic contributions to the disease and using the state-of-the-art genetic technology at the time. Um, so that this was the first real attempt to map the entire genetic contribution to Parkinson's. Um, the genetic technology has continued to advance and more and more has been discovered since then. We're, we're currently actually now with, with, with Andy Singleton 
uh, working on a worldwide study that will look at over 150,000 patients using genetic technology, including people from diverse backgrounds to really get a full genetic map of the disease. Um, so this has still been an ongoing uh, project, but it, that was the first major step to try to map the underlying genetic contribution to the disease. Now, from a layman's point of view, 17 years seems like a long time to try to figure something out. I think I would get frustrated, but in a scientific world, is 17 years a long time? Um, I think it's, it's, it's sort of you've learned along the way. So the, the ability, the genetic technology has allowed you to bring a bigger and bigger uh, magnifying glass to the DNA. Um, so we've just been continuing to learn more and more about what the genetic contributions to the disease have been. Um, and discoveries have happened along the way, like you mentioned, LERC2, this other gene, GBA, and as Andy mentioned, now 90 different genes you know, being linked. So with each iteration, you fine tune your knowledge and learn even more. Um, and you know, science is a is a long you know long term game. You know, to keep learning and 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 building on that knowledge. Okay, let's bring Debbie in here because I'd love to get her perspective on this. I'll add a couple things because you know Parkinson's happens to have a um, high variability person to person. And it's a very complex disease. And so just the process of going from disease understanding to developing new treatments inherently is, is, a, is stubbornly longer than other parts of medicine, perhaps. Although getting new treatments in any disease indication, it's hard. Biology is hard. But Parkinson's is, is generally slower, and that is influenced by that variability and complexity. And so, you know, 17 years might feel long in some areas, 17 years could be short in an area of Parkinson's. And one of the things that we've endeavored to do is to do what we can to speed up that process. And if you go back to some of these early genetic um, findings, again, this is just good timing on our part. We'd been around for a couple of years. We're starting to raise a little bit more money. We're meeting more people. Science is a lot more, there's a lot more open dialogue across scientific pockets. Um, and we're, we're constantly, uh, as an organization, we are beating the bushes. What's, what should we do next? Of all the things we can do, what's most important? How do we get started? You know, that was kind of a constant reprieve. And one of the things we did early around some of these prime genetic targets, you can see the payoff of it today is that we established these roadmaps and again, it was a way to say, you know, science left to its own devices might spend 10 years trying to go down one path and then shift its gears and spend another five to 10 years, you know, applying that and kind of reorienting because that aha moment to drugstore shelf goes across big different parties, you know, academic research in early stages, biotech um, um, engagement in the middle stages and big pharma. And, and government at the end stages when you're doing these massive clinical studies. And so we started our internal teams and Todd led some of these efforts. We started to put together these roadmaps for each of these new genetic targets. So a LERC2 roadmap, an alpha-synuclein roadmap, a GBA roadmap, and we've built more over time. But those are three that have helped really organize and prioritize and facilitate this concurrence, you know, so we're we're at the same time we're working on 
under more deep understanding of the biology. At the same time, we're working on how are we going to understand, identify people who carry these mutations and build out these cohort cohorts of, of genetic uh, risk factor carriers so that they're primed and ready so that when someone wants to start a trial, we don't have to spend five years looking for everybody. How do we work with uh, companies who are interested and might have some assets against these targets to kind of build out the tools they need for drug development, principally biomarkers, markers that can help us understand how the disease might be changing, but also markers that understand if your drug treatment approach is engaging the right the target of interest, you know, all sorts of things. And so we would map out these these game plans. And again, the the idea here was can we accelerate? Because these are really tricky, um, complex uh, processes, and we want to bring as much value as quickly as possible as we can to, for for our community. Well, and, and, and traditionally, the foundation has has is known for uniting patients and researchers from academia and industry and policymakers and regulators to push the critical research forward. And you'd mentioned, uh, you know, like corporate partners like Denali Therapeutics. Uh, Ryan Watts gives the foundation huge heaps of credit for funding and spearheading the collaboration around the, the LERC2 safety initiative. Part of this came about uh, when we made a discovery that there was a histological finding, meaning a defect in certain organs uh, when we inhibited LARC2 in large animals. Uh, and we basically partnered with the Fox Foundation and other companies and actually a really unique industry partnership to try to understand, is this uh, observation something that will ultimately halt development of medicines targeting LARC2? And with a lot of effort from the Fox Foundation uh, and these other collaborators in industry, we were able to basically show uh, that, in fact, it was safe to inhibit LARC-2. And this was really fueled by the Fox Foundation because many companies at that time were, 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 were very hesitant to continue working on LARC-2. So that's exciting to hear, right? Like, I mean, it's, it's, it's the whole trailblazer animalistic attitude that you have to just keep going after it. Yeah, I think one of the things that we also we haven't talked about is in, in addition to the funding one of the things the foundation's been very successful at is being a neutral convener across the research enterprise. As, as Ryan mentioned in that, it's not a, there's no natural place for where competing pharmaceutical companies would feel comfortable sharing knowledge, sharing tools, sharing information, comparing results. And the reputation the foundation has developed really is, again, because of when Debbie and Michael talk about their initial concepts, the purity of motive that Michael talks about all the time, we are here to develop treatments for Parkinson's, we have no other agenda. That really does get a lot of credibility with the research community. We don't play favorites, we want everyone to win. Um, and that really, I think, in this example, we had Pfizer, Denali, um, Merck, very significant companies willing to come to the table together for a common question, common challenge, scientific challenge, and we're able to break through that challenge. So now there's a trial Denali's doing on a LERC2 inhibitor that you can directly trace back to that work on this safety problem. And I, I do think it's really clear to the, the mission of the foundation and the what we bring to the table here to be problem solvers and really provide that neutral environment for, you know, the pa bring the patient interest to the table. What would the patient want to see happening right now? They would want to see us solving the problem together. And that's, you know, what we, we try to do. 
Speaking of the patients, uh, Debbie, in 2010, the Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative, or PPMI, was launched. What is PPMI? It is, at the time and today, it's a landmark study where we looked to, um, in the most comprehensive way ever, study Parkinson's in patients from the earliest point that it could be identified. And at a scale where the information could be um, in, uh, uh, interpreted and applied. And the, so this idea was that we would look at new, suspected Parkinson's, so just diagnosed, and really track um, and measure everything we could imagine um, in that patient over a multi-year period. And so the first um, it, uh, iteration of PPMI had 400 newly diagnosed Parkinson's patients and 200 controls. I happen to be a control, so I've been in that study since the very beginning. Um, and, and as have uh, the, you know, so many others. Um, but over time, um, what we found was that the, this was a core challenge for drug development in Parkinson's, particularly if you wanted to develop a medication or treatment that would um, interfere with the progression of the disease. You had a baseline um, need, which was to actually say, well, in the absence of treatment, what is the progression of the disease? And this is a this is a very um, difficult thing to answer, and it and it remains difficult today. And uh, but we had some hints, and we had uh, some, uh, you know, kind of um, naive, but at least places to start in terms of things we might want to monitor. But we needed to study that in patients, and so. Um, that study launched and has continued mostly by adding more and more um, flavors of Parkinson's disease and increasingly um, understand with, with increased understanding about um, Parkinson's disease, we know more about who's at risk for Parkinson's disease. And so we've added uh, people with, um, you know, Parkinson's who carries uh, particular genetic mutations. We've um, added people who have a particular sleep disorder that makes you more at risk for Parkinson's. And we have people who have Parkinson's in that sleep disorder, and we have people who don't have Parkinson's but have that sleep disorder. And everybody has gone through th the same protocol. It's a global study. And importantly, as we've built this and, and intentionally, all the data has been collected, de-identified, and made available to scientists worldwide. This endeavor is so massive. Um, and importantly, it's expensive, and it's also the time and dedication of the, the, um, the, the participants in the study. And so there, you can't squander that. You really, you, and, and we knew on day one, if we're gonna do this, this is gonna be such valuable information to everybody. Um, and it shouldn't, you know, 10 people shouldn't try to do this. It's hard to get done. So Fox will do it and we'll seek the support of, of uh, companies who need this to design their trials. And then we'll engage the Parkinson's patient community and beyond. And we will build something that is going to be, give us a pathway to understanding the disease and its progression. And so patients, you know, they were they they had to they had to raise their hand and say, I'm willing to get in. And and then particularly in the almost in the moment they're told that they might have Parkinson's, which is not the easiest moment to recruit somebody. No. But I think we 
showed not only that we could run a study like this, but that our community wanted to step up and be part of it. That's great. Uh, Todd, uh, PPMI 2.0 is about to get underway. Um, and, and, and the PPMI is one of those studies that could get us closer to a biomarker, you know, the blood test or the hypertension in heart disease or the blood sugar levels in diabetes. There's no biomarker for Parkinson's. How do you suppose this will get us closer to that? Yeah, I think like uh, the most important thing that PPMI is doing is really mapping the disease itself, which we, you know, because of the variability of the disease, we don't have that great information from the earliest stages, even prior to the onset of motor symptoms through the early stages of the disease. And then as the disease progresses and, uh, what you need to do to develop those biomarkers is have the, the biological samples. So we have blood samples, spinal fluid samples, but having it get linked to the rigorous clinical information on, on the individual. So there's a number of tests being explored, measuring alpha-synuclein, measuring different proteins to really try to dissect what this is telling us about the disease. Um, and I think, again, most importantly, what this data has done is really fed into the design of clinical trials that are happening right now. If we want to slow the progression of the disease, we have to understand what the normal progression is. So we kind of have that baseline of what we're trying to improve against. And the protocols and data from, from PPMI are being used now in the design of these trials, like the trial that we talked about that um, Ryan Watson Denali is doing. So it's really had a very significant impact and I think it's only going to grow as we're able to expand the project. And the patient experience has been really important to Michael too. The patient experience and the patient uh, struggle and, 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 and hopeful outcome of, of our work is, is, is central to everything we do. It, it starts with me, I guess, being, being that the foundation was, was created by someone with Parkinson's uh, that, that has a personal stake in it. I'm proud of this Michael J. Fox Foundation because I have my name on the work of, of, of all these fantastic people. Hey, Todd, how important and what impact has it had on the scientific community to hear directly from the patients? Um, I mean, this is uh, the only way we can learn about the disease. I can, I, mean, I was a laboratory researcher and I could do millions and millions of experiments in a cell culture hood or in a test tube. But unless we have the input from the patients on first clinically, what are we trying to fix? What's bothering you the most? And then, you know, we talked before about learning about the genetics of Parkinson's. I can only learn about the genetics from Parkinson's from somebody who has Parkinson's and their family. Um, so this is such a critical aspect. And I think it's one thing that we have really focused on as a as the foundation we have a unique ability to link the community that we work with with the scientific community that we work with and bridge that understanding most scientists who work on a disease never meet a person with that disease and that's something that we've really focused on um, not only the scientific research component of it but the human component of it. It's motivating to researchers and it's motivating to patients and and family members to, to meet the researchers and hear from them and hear what they're excited about. So this is, I think, integral to, to the work. You can't cure a disease without involving people who have the disease. And that's really something we've put at the, the core of our research agenda. 
With all the work you do, you you give us hope for finding a way to end Parkinson's. And someone who speaks really eloquently about this is Jim McNasby. And uh, Jim is a person with Parkinson's and the MJFF Chief People Officer and General Counsel. When I think about the work the foundation does and the commitment to a cure, it makes me feel like somebody's in, in there for me. Somebody's actually going to work every day uh, and trying to make things better for my life. And I got to tell you, that makes you feel so good. How does that make you feel, Debbie? I mean, it, it, it's part of, um, that's a common message. And I have to say, it feels good to know that we're not just doing the hard work, you know, head down, uh, the slogging that it takes to really orchestrate all of this, to raise the money, spend the money smartly, get all that data out. I mean, it is hard work. But Jim and, and others, they remind us every day that, that this work is important and and that um, that it brings hope. This partnership that we have um, with our the people with Parkinson's, their families, the people around them who love them, the the researchers, the, what they want to bring, what they can bring, and their pride in their work and and their willingness to collaborate, even though it's it's kind of a less common dimension than we would wish, sharing data, you know, bringing it all to bear. I it it comes back to people like Jim and 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 it's a constant and important reminder not only the role they play but of the of the importance of the work and um it makes me proud it really does it makes me proud well i mean <laughs> you should feel proud you recently announced that the michael j fox foundation has funded one billion dollars in global research programs since you opened its doors 17 new drugs and devices since 2014 the pipeline is chock full of new potential therapies Debbie, I guess my question for you is, when you look at all this stuff going on and, and you look into the future, what excites you the most? I think that the power of the patients and families has only in some ways just begun to be unlocked. And, um, you know, we talked a little bit about um, mapping the disease, that investment in disease understanding, the expansion of PPMI, these are fundamental uh, and seismic contributions to the state of the field. And it's one of the most interesting um, investments that we've really made. I mean, it's hundreds of millions of dollars and it's about to be doubled down. And it's one of the it's it's one of the few things I can think of where you have an immediate payoff, which is this data that's flowing right into clinical trials being tested now in Parkinson's patients. But it also has the ability to over years tell us something, bring us brand new insights into how the disease is changing, the variability person to person. Is that, you know, most people believe it's more than one disease. What what are there paths that we can now predict? I mean, the way we see Parkinson's will change daily. And then, but the other dimension is over decades. And I'm excited about how patients have have the key seat in that. That's been the case, but right now we're on the precipice of having learned something about the people who are most at risk for Parkinson's, and we're getting um, 
in small numbers, so now we're looking to validate this and this will be part of PPMI 2.0, understanding in some cases that we might be able to detect early or to really redefine when Parkinson's is starting for someone who has yet to show motor features, but we know they're at high risk. This is going to, to me, I'm very excited about that. It, 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 I will tell you, I didn't think that that was gonna be possible at this stage. First of all, I wouldn't have understood it um, 20 <laughs> years ago, but even five years ago, to imagine that PPMI as a study would be validating that we understand some people who might be at higher risk and we can follow them in, a, in, a, uh, in an observational study today and under certain testing environments, we can say, oh, that person looks like they actually already really have PD, even though they're not showing the classic motor features. And the reason that's so important, by the way, is that we'd love to find, so we're proud of the new treatments that have already been approved, but all of them are new additions to a physician's ability to help manage symptoms of Parkinson's. We have yet to have found something that we know can change the course of disease to interfere with the actually the biology of progression of Parkinson's disease. But we have a lot in the pipeline in phase one and phase two already that's that's looking at this. So if we're right, we're knocking on the door. To be able now to even think that we could be applying those possible new treatments to a subset of people who have high risk for Parkinson's before they even show motor features, that early detection is really an ability to prevent Parkinson's. So this now we, we have a, 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 a broader continuum of possibilities of impact for people with Parkinson's and people who are at risk for Parkinson's that is we are we are working on today. And that path to prevention to me is a stunning new opportunity. It's not diminishing our commitment to what we're doing for people who have Parkinson's, symptomatic treatments, possibly disease modifying treatments, but to add the people at risk, this is stunning stuff and it's transformative and we're not gonna let up. You know, this is important work. This is why our we're expanding what we're doing, you know, uh, we, you know, we raise, we talked about urgency and one of the, the downstream impacts and, and kind of pairing with that urgency is we spend every dollar we raise, right? We, and sometimes we spend it before we raise it. We're raising more money today and we have more science to put it to work on today. And so this to me is what we're, the impact is expanding, it's speeding up, it doesn't guarantee us anything, but I, I, I just, I know, and Michael and I talk about this, and since he's a hockey fan, having, you know, these hockey analogy, more shots on goal, you know, statistically, things are starting to move in our favor. And so this promise and excitement, I think it's everything. Well, I mean, you talk about exciting and sobering and urgency and uh, that, that, what you just said wraps it all up. I mean, I'm sitting here and I got tears in my eyes just thinking of the possibilities. And uh, it's it's really, it's, it's you, you said it early on, uh, there's magic there and it's exciting. And so thank you for all you do. We're proud. We're proud to, to, to be in the, in the middle of all these people who care so desperately and passionately about this and help facilitate everybody's ability 
to to bring better options. It's important work. Oh, that's a perfect note to end on. This is important work, and we look forward to all the great discoveries in the future that the Michael J. Fox Foundation is going to help us animalistically push forward. Debbie and Todd, thank you for taking us down memory lane. Thank you, Larry. Thanks, Larry. On behalf of all of us in the Parkinson's community, I also want to thank the MJFF staff. You guys are great. And the researchers around the world for working so hard to find a way to stop PD in its tracks. And thank you for listening and subscribing to the Michael J. Fox Foundation's Parkinson's podcast. If you'd like more information on the Michael J. Fox Foundation, its research, its programs, log on to michaeljfox.org. For everyone at the Michael J. Fox Foundation who is here until Parkinson's isn't, thank you for listening. I'm Larry Gifford. You can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. It's the same handle, at Parkinson's Pod. Be well. We'll talk to you next time. Did you enjoy this podcast? Share it with a friend or leave a review on iTunes. It helps listeners like you find and support our mission. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation at michaeljfox.org. Thanks for listening. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.